0: You guys doing all right today? And was there like a, a game or something last night? Something something good? I guess not, maybe. I don't know, okay. Uh, well, welcome to E3. My name is Eric. I'm one of the, the pastors here. And I am actually going to be kicking off this three or four week series on the book of Philemon. Uh, it's a tiny little book in the, in the New Testament towards the end of the New Testament And we wanted to just find something that that we could dig into before we start the the Christmas series off and at the end of Pathways. And I don't remember who originally suggested it, but it it, it eventually came up in our staff meetings. Hey, why don't we take a look at this short little letter from uh, this guy named Paul to a guy named Philemon in a church in Turkey. Uh, It's one of the most personal, if not the most personal letter written in the New Testament. It's full of personal details written from one man to another man who's part of a community. And so we're gonna just going to take a look each week at what the text has to say. But before we do that, I want to kind of lay some of the historical context, some of the background, some of what it might look like or feel like for the first hearers and experiencers of this letter. And I want to do that by, by taking a step back and talking about what it would be like if you attended church in the first century, because eventually this is going to have, I think, some ramifications for how this letter is experienced. So if you were curious about Jesus, if you were curious about this man who lived and died and was resurrected, you had a couple different options in the first couple hundred years after his life. You might be Jewish, and so you might go to synagogue each week. And in the synagogue, you would have some readings from the Old Testament and uh, eventually, every once in a while, someone might stand up and go, hey, this man named Jesus, he fulfilled all of these things that we heard about in the Old Testament. And if you were Jewish, you know, this would, this would be a cause for great debate. But if you weren't, you might be curious about Jesus and you would go to a, a different kind of gathering. Maybe you were Gentile and, and you just uh, showed up at a gathering to learn about Jesus. Now, Let's just be really really basic, you know, there's no electricity in the first century, so there's no lights. These gatherings don't look like our gatherings. There's no lights, there's no band, there's no screens. There's not even any Bibles. We have Bibles sitting around here. There's no Bibles. There's no binding. If there are any scriptures like in the synagogue, they would have they would have come from a, a scroll. And scrolls are kind of expensive and unwieldy. So scriptures and Bibles aren't just laying around for people to use. And furthermore, the New Testament doesn't even exist. So in your New Testament, when Jesus makes reference to the scriptures, when Paul refers to the scriptures, when Peter refers to the scriptures, it's the Old Testament. There is no New Testament to speak of. There's a collection of writings in the Old Testament. So you would show up at a gathering and the gathering would also look different in terms of its size. You know, E3 is far from being the largest church in North America, much less uh, even the largest church in Tallahassee. But to a first century person, this would be a megachurch. Because their gatherings, they were right in around the 40 to 50 people range. Because you met in a home. You didn't come to a building. The church owned no buildings. So church happened in somebody's house, looked a little bit more like our growth groups do than our Sunday gatherings. And the size of your church was governed by how rich or how wealthy, how big the house was that you met at. So if the church, if the person who hosted the church was really, really wealthy, well, you might be able to get 40 people into their living room or their courtyard. And that was the size of your church. But if if the person was kind of more of a moderate income or average income, the size of your church would be 10 to 15 people. And that's what it was. And so you showed up and uh, you would tell stories about Jesus. You would tell stories about the things that you've heard that he had said, the things that you'd heard that he had done, who he had healed. And you would swap these stories. You might sing a song, but the singing was done basically a cappella, no instruments. And we have some evidence in the New Testament of what we think some of the songs were, but we don't even really know. We're pretty sure that there was some kind of singing involved. You would take communion each week, and you would basically share your life, and that was what church looked like. Over time, uh, in the first, after the first kind of 50 years, these stories about Jesus began to be compiled. They began to be assembled, and they were assembled by guys that we know uh, as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the writers of our Gospels, the Good News, And you might be at a church, but most churches uh, at first only had kind of a copy of one gospel. So your church might only know the gospel of John. So you would read and you you would hear the stories of Jesus as John told it over and over again. But then over time, someone might show up from a different region, a different part of the Mediterranean, someone you had never met before, a different church, and they would come up with a new compilation of stories about Jesus. And they would say, we have some compilations of of stories about Jesus, uh, but the guy who did ours was a guy named Mark. And you guys have, your compiler, your author was John. And so the leaders of the church would sit down with these new folks, and and the new folks would, would read their gospel stories from Mark, and then they would compare them to the gospel stories about John, and they would go, wow, you've got different stuff than we've got. And they would kind of say, well, this really sounds like uh, the same Jesus that we know, but a slightly different portrait of him. And so the church began to compile and assemble this New Testament and these collections of stories. Every once in a while, somebody would show up with a collection of stories about Jesus, and they would read them. And the leaders of the church would say, you know what, that doesn't quite jive with the picture of Jesus that we've come to know and expect. And so we have some gospels and histories. There's more gospels than the four that we know about in our New Testament. But a lot of them just didn't quite square up with what the early church knew to be true about Jesus. So they said, you know, we appreciate your stories about Jesus, but they don't quite ring true to what we've come to know and understand about who he is and who he was. And then over a little more time, People would show up and they would have letters written from church leaders. As the church began to grow in different areas of the Mediterranean, they would show up with letters from guys like Peter, Paul, James, John, early church leaders, and they would say, we've got a letter from James that was written to a church that just deals with church business, because let's face it, church gets messy sometimes. And so these leaders had to write letters to the churches, answering their questions, correcting them, giving insight in how to live in community. And so your church gathering would then start to uh, consist of, hey, we're gonna read these letters from these church leaders and be reminded of what it's like to live in community. Imagine, uh, if you will, if you were uh, attending a gathering Somewhere around the late 50s, early 60s AD, in this tiny little house, you would show up to somebody's house. Somewhere in Asia Minor, which is really modern day Turkey. And you would show up at the gathering and then all of a sudden a messenger would show up into the community. And the messenger would come in and he would say, I've got two letters with me, church. I've got one letter that's written from Paul. And you would go, oh, I know Paul. Paul because Paul started our church. Paul started this faith community. And he would say, I've got a letter from Paul. It's written to all the churches in our region. We would know that letter specifically today as the letter to the Colossians. Paul writes a letter to a group of churches in Asia Minor, in Turkey. And so the messenger would say, I've got a letter. It's to all of us in this region from Paul. Everybody like, all right, let's hear this letter. And then the messenger would also say, oh, I've got another letter. It's for Philemon. And everybody would look around and they would point to Philemon because he was a leader of the church. And he'd be like, Paul wrote me a letter. All right, this is awesome. The messenger would come in. He gave the letter to the church. He gave a letter to Philemon. And then you would read the letter. So what I want to do today is experience this letter the same way the first church would have experienced. Now, I don't mean I'm going to read it in Greek. But the first scriptures were experienced by ear, not by reading. The church sat around, and they would hear large chunks of scripture just read to them, just read to them. And so what I want to do is actually read the entire text of Philemon. Don't don't get... Stressed out, it's only 25 verses. We can do this, I promise. And what we're gonna do, uh, if I understand where we're all going over the next few weeks with Philemon, we're gonna teach the entire text every week because it's so small. But what we're gonna do is each week we're going to address a point of view from three, four main stakeholders in this letter. And there are three to four of them, just depending on how this plays out. One of them is Paul, the guy who writes the letter. One is Philemon, the author, uh, the recipient of the letter. Another one is kind of the church that, that also receives the letter, and Philemon is a part of. And the fourth one is this guy uh, that we'll get to in just a second, but I'm gonna read the text. So if you guys would just, it's not gonna be on the screens. It's in your fridge fold, but I would just say, don't look at your fridge fold right now. Just listen. Just listen, this is the way the foundations of our faith were laid. This letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. I'm writing to Philemon, our beloved coworker, and to our sister, Apphia, and to our fellow soldier, Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Paul starts this way, I always thank God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, and I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. At this point, if you're Philemon, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. That's a great way to to get a letter that's starting off. That is why I'm boldly asking a favor of you. Hmm? I could demand it in the name of Christ because it's the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you. Consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he's very useful to both of us. Now, just real quick, Paul is making sort of a pastoral joke, and let's face it, pastors are guilty of really bad jokes. Onesimus' name in Greek means useful. So he's like, hey, I'm sending useful back. Guess he wasn't too useful to you before, but maybe he'll be useful. Like, it's like, get over yourself, Paul. It's not that funny. I'm sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I wanted to keep him here with me while I'm in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf. "'But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. "'I wanted you to help because you were willing, "'not because you were forced. "'It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while "'so that you could have him back forever. "'He's no longer like a slave to you. "'He's more than a slave, "'for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. "'Now he will mean much more to you, "'both as a man and as a brother in the Lord.' So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I'll repay it. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Which is, because you kind of just did mention it, Paul, like in front of the entire church, pretty sure. Yes, my brother, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I'm confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. One more thing, please prepare a guest room for me for I'm hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Closes this way, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings, so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my coworkers. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I'm gonna ask you guys before we go on, if you guys pray with me just before we uh, go any further. Heavenly Father, just lay, uh, just put everything out there in front of you. God, I'm asking you to take this, these words that have lived with the church for so long. Make them real for us now, Lord, today. God, I pray that we return the the eyes and the ears of our hearts and our spirits and our souls and our minds to what you have for us this morning. Focus us now, God. I believe that you want to teach us. I believe that you want to challenge us. Help us to be all here right now. Amen. All right, so characters. Paul, the writer, he's in prison. It's towards the end of his life. Philemon, leader of the church, gets the letter, the church itself, and then this guy Onesimus. These are the stakeholders in this letter. These are the main characters. I wanna to talk today about Onesimus, the point of view from him, from him, what's going on in this letter. And we can learn what, uh, who Onesimus is in just a few verses. I'm just gonna walk them through them real quick. The first thing we learn about Onesimus is Verse 10. Paul writes, I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. So what's the first thing we know about Onesimus? He's a believer. Paul has brought him to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And they're together, and they have a relationship that Paul's characterized like, he's my, he's my son in faith. Then it goes on, uh, verse 12 Paul writes, I'm sending him back to you. And with him comes my own heart. So we know Onesimus has been a part of this community. He knows this church. He knows Philemon. For some reason, he was gone. He's been with Paul. Paul is saying, he's coming back now. But then the third thing we find out about Onesimus is kind of where the hammer starts to drop. Because in verse 16, Paul writes this. He's no longer like a slave to you. He's more than a slave, for he's a beloved brother, especially to me. And with this, things get really, really interesting. Because now we find out that Onesimus is not just a believer, not just that he's coming back to this community, we find out that he's a slave. And most likely, he's a runaway slave. Now, just a word about slavery. Roman society, the Roman Empire is considered a slave society. Historians consider a slave society any society that is built uh, that consists of a 30% population of slaves. 30% of the population of the Roman Empire are slaves. Some areas of the Roman Empire, it's a little more, some less. But on the whole, 30%. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I feel like it might be important for our discussions to understand what slavery in the Roman Empire looked like. Because it doesn't look like the institution that plagued this country for hundreds of years. I just watched Lincoln on Friday night. Uh, Oh my gosh, what a movie. What a movie. Slavery in the Roman Empire, um, as, as awful as slavery always is, slavery in the United States based on race, based on the color of somebody's skin, generational, generational servitude. Awful. In Roman slavery, just as bad, but not based on the color of somebody's skin, based on military conquest. Roman army comes in and says, "Surrender or don't surrender. If you don't surrender, when we conquer you, you will be our slaves. But you might look like us, you might talk like us. It's not based as much on ethnicity and race as what we experienced here in North America. Uh, it's also. A situation where you could, if you were in debt, you would sell yourself into slavery to help pay the debts of, debts of your family. And related to that, Roman slavery wasn't necessarily a lifelong sentence. A lot of slaves were set free when they, when they turned 30. And after that, some slaves would actually go into business with their former owners. Their owners would kind of set them up, help them set up in business, and they would pay a little bit back to their owners, but it was used as an opportunity to kind of start climbing up the ladder. But, but, all that being said, don't miss what's going on here. If you're a slave, you're still somebody's property. And if you run away, it's not like the owner just goes, oh, well. If you're a fugitive slave in the Roman Empire, you're a fugitive slave. And if you harbor a fugitive slave like Paul has been doing, that's not good either. But that's Paul's story. I want to talk about Onesimus right now. And what we know about him is he's a believer, he's going back to a community, and back to the guy that owned him. And there's one other thing that turns the screws even tighter. Because in verse 17, Paul writes this. If you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. He's sending him back. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. And as best we can tell, what this means is that Onesimus has not just run away, but he's stolen money from Philemon. And uh, at this point, I want to just kind of get into Onesimus' mindset. Onesimus hanging out with Paul. Paul, who has told him about Jesus, who has told him, you're not a slave anymore, Uh, actually, Onesimus. You're now my brother. You're now my son. And Onesimus, I imagine, is experiencing just a, a radical, rechanging, reframing of his life. And then Paul says this. There's something you have to do, Onesimus. Yeah, Paul, what is it? You need to go back home. What? You need to go back to your master, your former master, the guy that you stole money from, the guy that you ran away from. What do you think is going through Onesimus' mind right now? Uh Uh-uh. What? Because here's the deal. There's no reason, we have no reason to think that he did not go back. So let's just assume for our discussions that Onesimus goes back. How do you do that? How does a fugitive, runaway slave who stole from his master say, all right, I'm going? I was reading this week, uh, actually, I read it years ago and I reread it this week. Uh, a story that I want to share with you that somehow connects this for, for me. In World War II, there was an anesthesiologist named uh, Dr. Beecher. Dr. Beecher uh, w- was serving in a hospital unit, the front lines. And in the middle of a devastating bombardment by the Germans, uh, bodies are being brought in, broken bodies, blood, uh, people who are just shattered. And the nurses are triaging and administering everything that they can try to administer to to ease these guys' pain. But something's happening. They're running out of drugs. In particular, they're running out of morphine. That's the drug at that time to ease the pain. And so a nurse is confronted with a man who's in agony and there's no morphine. And so she turns around and she fills a syringe full of not morphine, nothing, sugar water. And she says, here's morphine. And she gives it to the soldier. And the soldier's like, thank you, I feel better. And so the nurse goes to Dr. Beecher after the bombardment and she says, you know, amazing things happen. Uh, I was giving morphine to soldiers and it, or they thought it was morphine. It wasn't, but they believed it to be morphine, and they actually reported that their pain was lessening. Dr. Beecher, in 1955, comes home from the war, he writes a paper that starts to rock the medical world. By 1962, this phenomenon called the placebo effect is a part of all pharmaceutical trials. So for the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, if you wanna get a drug introduced into this country's commerce, you have to do a, a trial. And you, your drug has to beat the placebo effect, right? So what that means is that if you want to bring a drug to a child that says, hey, this is an antidepressant, so you get a group of people. You get a group of people who, have, who struggle with depression. You separate them into two groups. One group gets the antidepressant. One group gets a placebo pill with sugar in it. And then you see, did your pill do better than the placebo? What scientists have discovered is that over time, the placebo effect is actually getting stronger. In other words, people are reporting that if you just tell me something works, my body will kick in to heal itself. And what's happening now is that the medical establishment is realizing they've missed something for a long time. And what they've missed is this, that what you believe to be true about your situation matters. Instead of making the placebo a negative effect, what doctors are, and, and researchers are starting to realize is that what you believe helps you heal. What you believe to be true changes your reality. Now, don't get me wrong. You need the medicine. If you have a tumor, you need the medicine. But... You need your body, you need your mind to believe that that medicine will help. And when those two things line up, healing takes place. Here's what I'm getting at. Something happened to Onesimus. He bumps into Paul somehow, some way, and Paul tells him about Jesus, and Onesimus says, wow, I'm gonna follow this man. But something more happened. Because in these moments when Paul says to Philemon or to Onesimus, you have to go back. I would like to suggest to you that if Onesimus still believed that he was a slave, that if he still believed he was a fugitive, that if he still believed he was a thief, you know what he would do? He would do what fugitive, thief, runaway slaves do, and he would have kept Running. But something so foundational changed in Onesimus' life that he said, I believe I can go back because I'm not a slave. I can go back because I'm not a thief anymore. I can go back because I'm not a fugitive. I'm a brother. I'm a a son. And when I walk into this church and I look at this man who used to, quote, own me, He doesn't own me anymore. Something so foundational changed in his belief system that it changed everything for him. He no longer believed the labels that he was assigned. Slave, thief, fugitive, second-class citizen, bam, 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 bam. I don't think it's too far to stretch He said, those no longer apply to me. I am a brother. I am a son. I am free even. If this is the time when maybe if we were a different church, someone might give an amen. So how does this happen? How, How do you go from just saying, oh, you know, I'm saved, to saying everything about me is different? I was thinking about a couple of things that Jesus said in the Gospel of John. And I want to kind of just look there for a second. John chapter eight, Jesus is talking to some people that uh, follow him. He says, you're truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teaching, and maybe you know this scripture if you've grown up around faith or if you told fibs as a child, as I did. You will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. My mom always used that on me when, I was, when she suspected I wasn't telling the truth. She's like, you know, Eric, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That was right before she usually spanked me because of that. But, so maybe you grow up around church. Maybe you've understood this. The truth is going to set me free. The truth set Onesimus free. What's, so we you look, look, you think about it. What's truth? And we think about all the things we know as truth. Who Jesus is. What he did. Who we, the church we belong to. All the good Sunday school answers that we have. All the good things that we do in our life. All the truth of our lives. You'll know it and you'll be set free. But there's one other level to this see, a few chapters later, Jesus is talking to one of his closest followers. He's talking to a guy named Thomas who actually historically has a problem with the truth. He's called the doubter. After Jesus resurrected, he's like, I'm not so sure I believe this. But before that happens, Jesus is talking to him. Thomas asks him a question and Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, And the life. And what I'm getting at here is that sometimes when we read the story about and we think the truth will set you free, that's, that's right and that's true. But what Jesus also says is that I am truth. And that sometimes if you want to experience change the way Onesimus experiences change, if you want to be really free, it's not so much what you know about Jesus, but what you know of Jesus. Not what you, just what you know about him, but do you know the truth? Because Jesus is the truth. And we can get all of the right answers we can know all the truth there is to know about Jesus and still not have the type of change that Onesimus has because we don't know the truth with the capital T, and that's the man named Jesus. Do you understand what I'm talking about, church? One of my favorite artists is a gospel singer named Mavis Staples. About, I think, 2005, 2006, she recorded a song on her record. Uh, it's an old gospel song. It's called 99 and a Half. And the lyrics start out, she, the lyrics start out and she sings, I'm running, I'm trying to make a hundred because 99 and a half won't do. My God is a freedom God. And I think what Onesimus tells us is that sometimes freedom is a binary thing. You're either free or you're not free. 99 and a half percent of freedom isn't free. And God is 100% God. He doesn't stop and doesn't want you to stop at 99 and a half. Because 99 and a half would not have had Onesimus go back. 99 and a half, Onesimus would have been like, okay, I'm at the door of the church. I'm going the other way. (laughs) 99 and a half doesn't get you into that room. 99 and a half doesn't stand you in front of your former owner and go, I'm free now. I'm not your slave. I'm your brother. Yeah, I did some things wrong. I stole some money from you. Paul, my father, says he'll take care of it for me. But you don't own me anymore. That's what freedom looks like. How many of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that? How does it work? I can't tell you exactly. If I did, I'd bottle it. But I think it looks something like this. It looks something like the word blessed. It looks something like the word beloved. It looks something like all of the names that you carry around with, like Onesimus carried around with. What are your names? Onesimus was slave, fugitive, thief, runaway, outcast. What are yours? Failure. Fired from your job. Flunking out of school. Hungover this morning. Ashamed. Whatever those names are, the 100% God that I know wants to take all those away and say, Beloved. Blessed. Peaceful. Brother. Child. Child. But we don't get these names unless you know the truth. The truth doesn't come from getting all the right answers in your growth group. The truth comes from sitting at the heart of your father, from knowing Jesus. This brilliant imagery that I, I remember resonating with me when I was a little bit younger of just saying, do you know That God wants to invite you to come forward and to lay your head on His chest and feel His heartbeat. That's the type of 100% freedom. That's where that comes from. Because that heartbeat says, I love you. That heartbeat says, Those names that you carry, that's not who you are. You're changed. Before we wrap up, I just want to touch one last thing. Because we all, some of us carry other names. And some of these names are not so negative, but they're just as slippery. Because some of our names say successful. Some of our names say I'm in control. Some of our names say wealthy. Some of our names say secure, attractive. A plus student. Guess what? Those those names don't work either. God wants to call you forward and say, lay your head on my chest. Feel your heartbeat. I gave those things to you, but that's not who you are because that's not going to get you in that room either. The band is going to come up and I asked them if we would just play a song that we sang earlier. Uh, um, We plan on playing a different song. I feel like we just need to sing the song that I feel like reminds us so much how he loves us, how he loves us right now, this morning, church, And I invite you, wherever you're at, to take a step in your spirit towards the heartbeat of God this morning and say, I need to hear that again. 99 and a half won't do. I'm running for freedom. And our God is a freedom God. There's one little postscript to to this story. After the first wave of church leaders die out in the Mediterranean in the first century, a guy named Ignatius picks up the torch. And around 110 A.D., he writes a letter to the church right near where Philemon lived. And he's talking to this church and he says, I know your heart, church. You're a great church. And I know your heart because I know your leader. He calls him a bishop. I know how you're led, you're led well by a guy who loves Jesus. And do you know what the name of that leader was? Onesimus. Onesimus goes from being a fugitive, runaway thief to being a bishop in God's church. What does God want to unleash in you? Not unleash in the sense of like, hey, a bigger car, a bigger paycheck, a better looking boyfriend, girlfriend, work, job, whatever. What does God want to do with you for his kingdom if you would just be willing to say, I want 100% freedom? 99 and a half will not do it.